This program is brought to you by the Hawaii Chapter of the Society for Conservation Biology, with assistance from KTUH. SCB Hawaii offers opportunities for direct conservation action through our Education and Outreach, Policy, and Science Communications Committees. To learn more about these opportunities and to join our chapter, please visit www.hiscb.org. Membership is free for students and $10 for professionals. You can also join the SCB Global Organization at www.conbio.org. That's C-O-N-B-I-O.org. Mahalo. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. It has been a long time since our last episode. Maybe, maybe like eight or nine months, I think. Uh, I am Max Bendis. I will be hosting this episode of Conservation Talk Story. Unfortunately, Emily Says No can't join us today because uh, she has better things to do. She is on the mainland uh, in D.C. She's currently working on both simultaneously trying to get some of her research published. And at the same time, she is retrofitting a van to go and road trip around the U.S. So, Emily, if you're listening to this, we miss you and we're very, very jealous of you. But luckily, we've got a really great episode planned today. Uh, we have a wonderful guest in the quote-unquote studio with us. Uh, we're joined by Jane Beachy. Jane is a, an expert in native plant conservation. She has over 20 years of experience working here in Hawaii on native plants. She is a, a RCUH contractor with the Natural Resources Conservation... Or, well, let me rewind a little bit because <laughs> I'm already stepping over myself. Uh, Jane is the Natural Resources Conservation Manager with the Army Natural Resources Program on Oahu. And she's here today to talk to us about the importance of native plant conservation. So Jane, I'm gonna hand it over to you so you can introduce yourself a little bit better than I just did. Uh, no problem. Um, no, that that was that was totally fine. I, it's really weird to uh, kind of to be, <laughs> to be on a podcast like this. Um, so we'll see how <laughs> yeah. it all goes, but um, Yep. So yeah, I'm, uh, I've been in conservation for, for a long time now. It was kind of my career when I first got out of college and I'm really excited to have been doing it for so long. And, um, yeah, so I, I work at the Army Natural Resource Program on Oahu and I'm, uh, it's an RCUH kind of administered program. So I'm affiliated with the university and I'm a, okay, cool. I'm a contractor. So yeah, yeah, and I've been there for <laughs> kind of an embarrassingly long time when I think about it. But um, that's impressive. It's not embarrassing. <laughs> well, it's no, it's good. I feel like I've been able to kind of see the program grow a lot, and um, you know, I think it's a it's a great way to learn about conservation and natural resource management is to do it hands on by by doing work in the field and practicing it. So yeah, there's so many good agencies working in Hawaii. <laughs> And it's uh, it's nice to be a part of that. How did you uh, how did you actually get started in conservation? Was this something that you've always been interested in as a kid, or did you just sort of find it later on in life? Um, yeah, so I, I was always like the kid who was out climbing trees in the backyard. <laughs> I'm sure my parents had no idea which trees I was climbing and and stuff. But so I was always interested in that you know that kind of stuff, um, being outside and the natural world, you know. Um, I think actually one of my first memories of like really kind of cueing into plants was um, 
the the ridge behind my house, my Eli Eli Ridge, it's like completely alien dominated. But when I was a kid, there was like we'd we'd hike on a trail up to the top, and I remember spotting this one plant that looked really different to everything else. And I learned later that it was an akia plant, so Wickstromia oahuensis, not the coastal one, but like one of the more Malka. Uh, species and it was really it was just so different to everything else I had this very kind of architectural shape um, and it kind of I mean it wasn't a small plant but it kind of reminded me of bonsai in that it was so kind of like structured and so that was kind of one of my early memories of really queuing into a, a specific plant and thinking like oh this is different this is unique and at that point in time I probably didn't really understand native versus non-native and all of that so but yeah so I was always kind of interested in the natural world in high school I I really lucked out and I got this amazing internship with the Nature Conservancy it was called Hoa Aina and it was a summer program it was a paid internship which is amazing um and it was run by a trio of women uh Pauline Sato, Terry Yamamoto and uh, Kuhea Paracueles were the three leaders for that program. And there were, I think, 12 of us students. And for those six weeks, we kind of, it was a very intensive kind of summer experience uh, getting exposure to conservation careers in Hawaii. So we most of our time was on Oahu, but of course we spent, you know, because that was most convenient, but we got to spend a week on Molokai and a week on Maui. So that was amazing getting to see other islands and going to places where people don't really get to go to very often, like Pu'ukukui on the West Maui side and, and up to Kamako and Mo'omomi on Molokai. So it was, it was a, a really unique kind of internship because it was focused as much on learning and education as like actually doing field work. So a big part of it was like thinking about what careers in conservation looked like, kind of the, the range of them, the marine to, to terrestrial to kind of more like the cult, incorporating cultural aspects in sites like fish ponds and lo'i. And um, yes, it really just kind of was a very um, uh, important uh, summer for me in terms of really showing me what conservation could look like and that it could be a career. So I've really got to credit <laughs> Pauline, Terry, and uh, and Kuhea um, for their for their guidance uh, at the end of my high school time and kind of getting me started into conservation. It seems like there's no shortage of those types of opportunities here in Hawaii. I mean, given the natural history of the place here and just how special just about every plant you can find on the islands is, you know, for the people that I've met who have actually been lucky enough to grow up here, everybody seems to have a story like that or a connection like that that really helps ground them here in Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, and I think the other nice thing about that program was because they focused so much on kind of exposing us to different careers and, and kind of making connections is when I was in college and I went to school on the mainland, but I qualified for summer federal work study aid, uh, in the summer, which meant basically that, um, I was really cheap to hire. So it was like uh, whatever agency I would work with, it would be like maybe they'd pay two to three dollars of my wage and the summer federal work study program would pay the remainder. I, I kind of looked at contacts I made during the whole INA program and emailed a bunch of them and was like, basically, I'd love to work with you. 
I'm very affordable <laughs> because of this uh, summer federal work study program. And um, yeah, and I ended up ha- um, kind of interning with the uh, with the Army Natural Resource Program back when it was only uh, six people. Um, so I, I, I was an awesome summer of really intensive field work. And, um, and that really kind of cemented that this was the field I wanted to go into. So yeah, it, I think internships like that are great for making connections and just kind of seeing um, where you want to where you want to be <laughs> and developing relationships, relationships with uh, potential employers in the future. You certainly had uh, an extensive career in conservation, you know, here in Hawaii and also on the mainland. You know, there must be there's probably a lot of accomplishments that you've had, but there's probably like one or two that really stick out as like your big accomplishments. And I'm sure that you've also got some pretty big regrets to go along with that, too. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's a hard one. I think, you know, um, it, it's funny. I don't really tend to kind of like look back on what I've done and be like milestones in my career kind of thing. Um, in many ways, I kind of still feel like a, <laughs> uh, I know I remember exactly what it felt like to be a new intern and to be a new hire. So it's sometimes I still kind of, you know, get that feeling of like, wow, there's still so much to learn in this, in this career. <laughs> still, still so much room to grow. Um, I, I feel, I feel the same way. Yeah. I've, I've only been here for about 15 years now, but I'm still learning so much all the time. Yeah. It's never, it's never ending. Um, I guess one of, one of the accomplishments is that kind of, um, early on in my career, I, I started, um, I kind of focused on vegetation management and um, invasive plant control. And so I did a lot in, in building our program for that. And I'm, um, and it was, uh, you know, many years of work and kind of adjusting things and adding new elements. And so I'm, I'm proud of the work that I've been able to do in that and, um, and to become a part of that invasive plant management community um, in the mm-hmm. state. So, yeah, I, and I think the other thing, I, I guess it's not so much an accomplishment, but um, but I guess, like, I think that a, a good thing so far in, in my career, that sounds so formal, but um, is that there's always more room to learn, like we're talking about. And so I never feel like I'm stagnating. You know, it's like there's always something new to investigate and develop there's always new challenges. There's always new cool things to learn about. Um, but I really appreciate that about, about the natural resource management and conservation field is that there's, there's always a room, there's always room to learn more. So I, I think that it's not so much an accomplishment, but I guess it's more of like a um, kind of, yeah, just a, a positive about being in this field. Um yeah, that's good. It's it's a, it's a life lesson to come out of conservation work. <laughs> yes, a reminder: you will never know everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we've talked a little bit about your past, but I'd also love to know about what you're looking to do in the future. You know, if you have any cool projects in the pipeline right now, or what do you sort of have your eyes on as the next sort of big thing for mm. for native plants in Hawaii, if there even is one. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think with native plants in Hawaii, I guess one thing that I've seen kind of happen more, um, you know, over the last 20 years is a really increased, um, 
I'm not sure even if public awareness is the right word, but I think a, a increased awareness of native plants and native ecosystems and that they have value. And so I think that has been really exciting to see. Um, and this might be a bit more broad than kind of what you're thinking, um, but I think one, one kind of thing that I really see is something that kind of will grow off of that kind of increased awareness of native plants and native ecosystems is, is kind of, um, I guess, kind of building on that, like, and, and trying to get, uh, trying to help people have, make connections to native ecosystems and native plants, because it's only by having a connection that you value things and that that valuation that you have will trickle down into other things like what you do um, in, you know, no matter what career you're in, but kind of the decisions you make, the um, level of support you give to um, bills that are coming up or how funding is allocated in the state. And, you know, I think that is, I think that is a huge bonus um, for, for native, yeah, for native ecosystems and native plants in general. And I think I, I was really struck, I was at a meeting and um, there had been a survey had been done kind of just trying to gauge people's awareness of, um, it was it had to do with rod, the rapid ohia death. And so it was kind of gauging awareness of rod and, and of ohia in general. And like this one survey on a, on a popular trail, it was like some vast percentage of the people had never heard of ohia which was horrifying <laughs> to me because I don't know if, you know, if the people on that trail were local or not, but I would hope that if they were, that they would at least know what Ohio was. So, um, yeah, like just a little bit, just a little bit like that. It exists, that it's um, culturally important, that it's a keystone species, that it's amazingly variable. I mean, okay, now I'm getting into more details, but just, no, that's a good thing. Details are good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would. It's such an amazing plant, and it's so important to our forests. And just that people didn't even know what it was. Um, so I think just for native plants in general, I think having that increased kind of um, uh, awareness and kind of bringing those plants into not just our kind of uh, Malka forest landscapes that are managed for for conservation and preservation, but into our kind of more human landscapes. The uh, urban, residential, rural <laughs> landscapes where, where we live and where we spend most of our time and bringing plants into that. And I think that would probably end up being more common native species than, than rare and threatened and endangered species. But I think that would be a huge help. <laughs> I've also noticed this uh, seeming trend in people starting to pay attention to, or at least we're, we're hearing a lot more chatter about things like ecosystem services reasons why natural systems are important there's mm -hmm. a push in hawaii especially um you know we're, we're the world leader in biocultural restoration we do it better than anybody else this incorporation of you know ecological restoration along with the cultural importance and you've just got a greater need for these types of systems here in hawaii there than anywhere else i mean We've got the, the big food insecurity issue, and the government has invested a lot of money in fixing that. Um, I think Governor Ige's goals by 2030 is a, a near, not a complete reduction, but a, a 10 to 20 percent reduction in imported foods across the entire state. Uh, and to do that, we're going to need to expand agriculture locally, but we need to do it in a sustainable fashion so that we don't 
overburden our ecological systems. I guess I'm getting off on a tangent of my own research and the stuff that I do. Let me bring myself back to the focus here, which is native plants. Oh, I like it though. I like it. Right? But the point that I'm trying to make here is that it seems that people are finally starting to pay attention and understand that plants are important and natural systems are important for our well-being as people in a modern society. But something that I have also noticed is that there's a lot of talk about conserving native plants and how native plants are important. But I feel like that point gets really glossed over oftentimes, especially by those of us in the actual conservation community, because it's just a given for us. You know, we can just say, yeah, it's conserve native plants. Native plants are good. And everybody accepts that it's true. And I believe it's true. And I'm pretty sure that it is actually true. But I think it's important that we delve a little bit deeper than that surface layer and actually examine why native plants in many cases, especially in a place like Hawaii, which has such a unique and special ecological history, why these native plants are more valuable than non-native plants, which serve similar purposes. So for me, one of the big things that I found and kind of like, quote unquote, the biggest thing is the the influence of co-evolution between plants and pollinators and plants and just anything that lives in that ecosystem. So co-evolution is the uh, phenomena by which two different species evolve together, not necessarily to be the same, but in response to each other's evolution. So the process by which, you know, flowers, certain types of flowers evolve to attract bees over other pollinators and bees evolve to better take advantage of those flowers. You know, they, they, bees can see differently than we do. They can see UV light and there are flowers that have, you know, UV coloring on them that we can't see, but the bees can, and it attracts the bees. Um, we could talk about the specialization between native Hawaiian, you know, bird pollinators and their wonderful beaks, the honey creepers, and the flowers that have evolved, like the, the lobeliads, I'm just falling all over my words here, <laughs> that type of coevolution. So this yeah. is something that I've noticed as being really important. And Jane, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, whether coevolution is like the big one, or what are the other things that I'm missing and that other people are missing too? Yeah, no, I think um, that, I think, well, I think there's like kind of like the broad, like why are native plants important? Um, and then there's like specific kind of like ecosystem questions of how they're important. And um, and there's a lot to talk about with all of those. I guess I, for me, I kind of like place it in my head in terms of framing things. I, I always like to remind myself of the rate of introduction of new species to Hawaii. Um, and how that's changed so much over time. So like that that rate, right, was estimated to be like one successful establishment of a species every 25,000 to 50,000 years prior to humans being in Hawaii. And now it's estimated to be one every 18 days. So that's just, you know, it's such orders of magnitude different. And I think of that in part because of my kind of background working with invasive plant issues, but also because it really highlights how unique 
uh, the Hawaiian ecosystem is and how much time things had to co-evolve, like you're saying, with uh, plant pollinator relationships, and etc. And so that, I think for me, that kind of places it in the kind of the broader context of why is it important? Well, because it's it's so unique in the entire world and it had uh, so much time to develop into what it is. And that's not to say it was ever a static kind of system, you know, a new thing would come in and the ecosystem would shift. But what what was here, I think, before a lot of human disturbance was something that just had a huge amount of time to come to uh, to change and come to an equilibrium and to kind of like develop its own unique system. And I think that there's an intrinsic value in that and an intrinsic value in protecting um, such unique ecosystems that are are replicated nowhere else and are um, kind of the the framework <laughs> for all the people that came after. So that's kind of like my kind of, I always like to think of, keep that in the back of my head as like a broad why. Um, but yeah, like you were saying about pollinators and plants and, and then of course there's frugivores and seed dispersers. I think that that is a huge issue coming up in, in native plant management now. Um, we know <laughs> it's kind of an oxymoron, but to protect native plants, there's a lot of killing that has to go on. <laughs> we have so many invasive species here from from pigs to rats to slugs to, I mean, so many different kinds of arthropods that aren't native um, diseases that protecting those ecosystems is, is often a matter of kind of reducing those threats. Um, and and we know how to reduce some threats, right? We know how to reduce uh, uh, pig levels by fencing out pigs. We know how to, and same with goats. And we know how to, uh, you know, remove rats from an ecosystem with traps. But what we don't know how to, how what we can't really overcome is when those native uh, plant pollinator and frugivore relationships are broken, like when species go extinct, um, it's really hard for us to, see uh it's really hard for us us humans to compensate for that so you know you mentioned the lobelioids or campanulaceae family and um there's been some amazing work on that group um richard pender has i don't know if you've seen his his uh, doctoral work um but he looked at like a ton of uh kind of interactions between uh claremontias and uh, various honeycreepers and kind of like, you know, seeing how they're <laughs> the shape of the flowers and the kind of the shape of the bill of, of current like extant live honeycreeper species, as well as extinct ones, how they kind of match up. Um, he did a, a ton of in-depth work on that. And then um, uh, a colleague of mine has done some work looking at uh, fruits and then senescence with the native cyania, which are closely related to Claremontias. And um, what she had found was that the fruit that was kind of left on the plant um, and not dispersed because there are no native fruit dispersers for it um, was, was just kind of senescing. It was losing viability in, in two to eight weeks like down to insanely low levels. So that just kind of shows that like when we don't have native frugivores, we, when, when we don't have native pollinators, then it makes it that much harder to 
to kind of make sure that these plants will persist into future. So I think that that's a huge, <laughs> it's a huge um, uh, concern in terms of um, how to help our native forests persist into the future. Um, and there are folks studying that now, like um, there are folks studying kind of, uh, what is it? called i'm blanking of course novel ecosystems of seed disperser networks and um, between alien birds and alien plants and native plants and and um i I think the results i've seen so far there was just a paper that came out about frugivores and novel ecosystems um was indicating that uh, unfortunately while um alien birds will disperse native plants which is great they, they mostly disperse alien plants. So that's less great. So it's, it's definitely like, oh, good, we have a, an alien bird that's fulfilling, you know, filling this kind of uh, niche left absent by, by something that's gone extinct. But it's not as, as simple as that. It's also dispersing all of these alien plants, which are threatening the habitat of, of the native species. So yeah, it gets really complicated. <laughs> like, okay, so now we know you know, X is a threat, or now we know that uh, Y is an issue. Okay, how do we work to um, mitigate for that? What can we do to kind of help out uh, <laughs> uh, either remove the threat or maybe kind of like provide an extra boost? Um, and there's just, I think, I think a lot of the easy things, we've, we've got an idea of how to deal with them. And we're on to some of the harder things, like extinct pollinators, extinct frugivores, really tiny population sizes. So I think that's maybe where, to go back to your much earlier question of where things are going in the future, I think that's something that's going to need more research. Do you think we're doing a good job of addressing these things in Hawaii now? I mean, the invasive species problem has been an issue here basically since people showed up. So much of it depends on... uh, you know, how well funded our Department of Agriculture is and their ability to do the inspections that are needed. And they were curtailed a lot during the last recession. And um, and I'm not sure it, if they've been able to kind of recover their capability yet, right? Like, I, I think, yeah, invasive species issues have been a problem since people got to Hawaii. And they, we have, we have, um, ideas of what to do to mitigate that and how to prevent new things from coming in. And the Hawaii Invasive Species Council has a, an awesome kind of like biosanitation plan for the state. Um, but I think the challenge is, is, you know, changing any laws that need to be changed or maybe regulations that need to be adjusted. And then like, having secure funding and uh, and a real priority for like biosanitation mm-hmm. as a as something that we have to support even when times are tough because once a new threat comes in like it is so much harder to deal with <laughs> after that point in time like uh, and sometimes we don't even have the tools to deal with it like things like rapid ohia death are really challenging um, how do you control <laughs> this this disease that that there are no tools to control it. We just want to try to prevent it from moving around and keep forests as healthy as possible so that they can be resilient to that disease. So we we, we kind of glanced over this a little bit earlier, but I kind of wanted to just go back to it and make sure that we mm-hmm. sort of nailed this. Um, 
So we mentioned the concept of ecosystem services and all the things that plants and, you know, healthy functioning, natural systems give to people. Um, And, you know, we talked about the relationship between native plants and native pollinators, but is there a similar type of relationship between native plants and ecosystem services? So like some of the, some of the main things that plants do for us on that sort of ecosystem level uh, would be a big one in Hawaii is aquifer recharge. So when you have a bunch of plants on a hill, it slows the water down. So it's able to actually percolate down into our groundwater aquifer. So then we can drink it. Otherwise it just runs out into the ocean and mixes with all that salt water. So it becomes useless to us. On top of that, you know, the plants, the plants, they slow the water down. So it's not carrying as much erosion with it. And the roots themselves hold on to the soil and keep it in place. So that limits the erosion. At the same time, any fertilizer runoff or pollutants in the water running down the hill also gets sucked up, sucked up by the plants. And while all this is happening, they're cycling the nutrients out of the, from the soil into their bodies, then back down into the soil, creating these healthy soil systems that keep plants healthy and keep nutrients in the soil and keep them out of our waterways and our coastal ecosystems. And, you know, these plants are doing so many things all the time, but I want to know if native plants are better at doing that in Hawaii than non-native plants are. Is that, is that even a thing or, or is it just, you know, wishful thinking on my part? Well, of course they're better in every possible way. No, I'm (laughs) I'm kidding. I think, (laughs) but I'm totally biased, of course. Um, Every plant is native somewhere. Right. So I think um, I think a lot of it has to do with like whether native plants or alien plants are better at kind of providing ecosystem services in terms of water recharge and and everything. I think for that, it's. um, I guess it's in part because we're dealing with a novel ecosystem, so we're. Some of these alien plants, they might be really great for groundwater recharge in ecosystems where they're in balance and and where they're native. So where they've got, you know, competition keeping them in check, where they've they've got their own kind of um, local pollinators and and local pests um, and, and kind of more balanced ecosystem. So I think for me, I think of it more as like the... And, and I don't really have data for this, but like that the, the mm-hmm. best ecosystem for providing ecosystem services is one that's in balance. And with Hawaii, with how invaded our forests are, I'd say that they're not in balance. So um, I think it's less about whether or not strawberry guava is good for groundwater recharge because it might do great for that in Brazil, but in Hawaii, I think there actually is some research on this. Um, I don't have the data to hand though, that it's it's probably not as good um, in part because it forms these huge dense monocultures. It has really smooth uh, trunks. So probably there's more kind of like trunk flow. <laughs> it doesn't have as many epiphytes on it. It doesn't support a healthy understory of diverse um a healthy and diverse understory with a strong fern layer. Um, so 
I think for me, it's more a picture of like the entire ecosystem. But I guess, um, you know, to, I guess to, to dial it back, there is some research being done on, on kind of the utility of native forest for um, water recharge versus alien forest. And I think there's some folks at USGS studying that and some, some uh, folks at UH as well. I want to say Liat Portner. Hi, Liat. I'm totally bringing your name up now. I think she's studying that, that as part of her, her degree. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, there, there are folks that are looking at that, but, but that is kind of, you know, to me, it's less of like, okay, whether this one species is bad, it's like, what is the matrix? Um, and, and that, that's, that's kind of a big factor. It kind of seems like we've been talking a lot about the science side of things. And I, I think that's, you know, really important. It's kind of the point of the podcast, I guess you could say. Um, but native, native plants goes beyond just the scientific mm -hmm. side of things. You know, we support native plant conservation, not just because it's what's best for our ecosystems, but also because of the cultural significance of a lot of these plants. Uh, my personal research is focused on interactions between breadfruit and mamaki. And while breadfruit is not a quote unquote native plant, it is a canoe plant. And mamaki is an endemic Hawaiian plant, meaning that it's native here and only found here. You know, these are very important plants culturally in Hawaii. And especially for mamaki, it's, it's a, a native plant at the same time uh, that has distinct cultural significance only to Hawaii. So me as a transplant here, I don't have nearly as close of a connection culturally to Hawaii as I would like. I've only been here for three years. I'm working on it. I'm getting there. Every day I get a little bit more Hawaiian. Uh, but Jane, you actually grew up here. So I'm hoping that you can speak a little bit more to that cultural significance of native plants and sort of the, the bond that people and plants can share with place. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a, yeah, I think that's a really important thing. The bond between, between place and person and, and, and the various other inhabitants of that place, plants and animals and all kinds of, uh, you know, birds and arthropods and everything else. Um, so I, I guess like I don't feel qualified to speak from like a, a, a cultural Hawaiian perspective because I'm I'm not um, Hawaiian, but I am Kama'aina and I do have, you know, I feel like I do have a relationship with all these plants and it's um, be, because I grew up with them and also because I've spent, you know, my adult life thus far um, trying to preserve native ecosystems. So I think for, there's just so many ways in which native plants are important. You know, there's, um, there are, there are things like, um, you know, kind of like how native plants feed into um, Hawaiian mo'olelo and, and how much they're referenced there and, and how those examples kind of like don't mean as much unless you know the plant, unless you know where it lives. And so I think just having, you know, to think of these plants maybe blinking out of existence, it means that those kinds of, um, that cultural heritage is also lost in terms of what, what does that olelo no eao mean when you, when you don't even have the plant around <laughs> that, that kind of references it, you kind of lose all of that. Um, 
I mean, and then there's of course the importance with with hula and with um, the martial art lua and you know so many other things that I'm I'm not the best best person to discuss. Um, but I think for me, like just kind of as, as a kamaaina, and and this does go back to some things we said at the beginning. It it's that sense that Hawaii is unique and there's nowhere else like it, and that what what is truly uh, native, and and I am using that in the biological sense, not the cultural sense of native, is is comes with such a depth of history and such a uh, long time scale that I feel fortunate that I'm able to kind of go out and and see these plants and see Pichardia martii lolu on the Ko'olau summit and then see its sister Pichardia ka'alai um, in the Waianae mountains and to see um, Tetramelopium rockii which is a little kind of uh, daisy relative see it on the on the coastal sand dunes of Mo'omomi and then to see it um, I think it, you know, that's, there's a ton of different tetramelopiums and one that I um, work with some now is a tetramelopium filiforme on Ohikilolo Ridge, Makua Valley. And just kind of, you know, seeing how all of these, um, these species have kind of spread and adapted to their local environments and how they make each place unique um, is really um I don't know. I, 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 I get a lot of joy from that. And I, for me, it kind of makes me feel a little bit like, um, you know, that I'm part of a, I'm part of a, <laughs> this is going to get super cheesy, but that I'm part of like a whole, I'm part of the ecosystem and I'm, I can see how, how it's evolved and I can see how um, it fits together and that, you know, it's not completely separate from me that I, I get to witness it happen. Yeah. I mean, you bring up a great point there and I don't think it's like hokey to say that you're part of the ecosystem because you absolutely are. Um, this is something that uh, I, I heard from Dr. Kavika Winters uh, a couple of years ago at a Society for Conservation Biology meeting, but he talked about this concept of, you know, this this Western idea that like man versus nature, man and nature separate, that in order to conserve nature, we have to separate people from nature. And, you know, I mean, yeah, we need to limit our impacts on nature, but Dr. Winters' big point here was that that separation is a false dichotomy. You know, we are a part of nature and we need to integrate ourselves and our society into natural systems and find ways for them to cooperate in order for us to be successful in conserving them. So I don't think it's hokey at all when you say I'm part of the ecosystem because you absolutely are. And there's actually a lot that people can do on their own to sort of be part of the ecosystem outside of, you know, like, going out and living in it and we don't realize that our lives and our impacts in, impact local ecosystems whether we're conscious of it or not um a lot of people in hawaii are lucky enough to have backyards i am not one of them i have to settle for a lanai although there's lots of potted plants on there so i'm doing something it there is still an impact though uh it's just a little bit smaller but a lot of backyards do make an impact on the sort of greater ecosystem around you, especially when we consider things like stormwater runoff uh, and 
excess fertilizer getting into storm drains and getting out into the ocean. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of what I like to call backyard conservation, where you sort of take over your yard as a little conservation zone, so to speak, and you fill it with native plants and you properly manage your water and you properly manage your fertilizer. And not only does that sort of help out the ecosystem as a whole by limiting the you know impacts from urban areas, but also it helps foster that connection to place because here are these native plants that are, you know, local and special and have a history here and they're right there in your backyard to help you out or, or for you for you to see and to interact with. And there's this uh, ecological concept that has a, a really complicated definition and I'm honestly having a hard time nailing it down specifically because every paper I read about it seems to have a different idea about what it means. But the concept of a, a micro refugia is, uh, is something that I, I really like the idea of. My The best definition that I can come up for it is that it's a small area, micro, which serves as a refuge, refugia, for native plants and pollinators. Um, there's been some research on the, the impact of these things, uh, not like backyard micro-refugia, but micro-refugia out in an ecosystem, as in like a microclimate where this valley has like, it's, it's a valley, so it gets a lot more water. So there's this small population of, of native plants here, and that has created a, a micro-refugia for many rare pollinators or, or insects or birds in the area. And, you know, I, I feel that backyard conservation can make a difference. And even if it's not a, you know, major difference, it at least gets people involved in it. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear um, if, if you do any of this kind of stuff in your backyard, I mean, certainly you're knowledgeable about these things and sort of what, what you think about the, the personal impact on native plant conservation and what, what are the realistic things that people can do outside of, you know, just, hey, put native plants in your yard and, I don't know, maybe volunteer with organizations like the Hawaii chapter, the Society for Conservation Biology, as we, you know, organize groups to go out and remove invasive plants from special areas, you know, that kind of thing. Check out our website, www.hiscb.org and become a member. And you can also get some sweet volunteer opportunities, but enough <laughs> plugging. Jane, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what people can do, uh, not non-scientists or even scientists at home outside of work hours, the things that we can do to, to aid in native plant conservation and, and whether we as individuals can make an impact in this scenario at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I that interest that idea of micro refugia is really interesting, and I, I definitely support. I, I definitely think it's worthwhile to bring native plants into our human uh, our, our human dominated landscapes, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, I think it, it is important to recognize the difference of conservation in Malka regions like the you know, the, the summit of the Ko'olau Mountains, the summit of the Waianae Mountains, um, the Wau'akua areas, and, and how that is different towards than mm -hmm. work in um, residential business, uh, median strips on the side of the highway. Um, 
all these other things. I think they fill different purposes and they have different roles. Um, I think a, a lot of the work that I've done in my career is, is focused on the Malka regions. And I think that unfortunately, because of our kind of so many invasive species we have in, in Hawaii that um, there's not always a lot of connectivity from the Mauka regions to kind of the human landscapes, at least on Oahu. Um, I can't really speak as much about the other islands because I'm not as familiar with all the work. Of course, I think it's different if you live in Volcano and you're surrounded by a rainforest, but if you live in Kalihi and you're surrounded by an urban environment, <laughs> kind of your your backyard's connectivity to um to native pollinators is going to be more distant. Um, so I think a lot of the value for getting native plants into kind of our, our um, urban human landscape is in part to develop connections, to increase awareness, to develop an appreciation for those species, for the cultural uses that they have, for the amazing lay you can make um, and the woodworking and, and all the rest. Um, I think for, um, and that's not to make light of that at all. I think that's huge and hugely important. I think one of the other really important things that people can do is to help mitigate the spread of invasive species and new invasive pests, because that is a, a very real threat to um, the health and persistence of our native forests. So I think ways to do that, you know, like, having good hiking etiquette and cleaning your shoes between hikes um, and not just your shoes, but your field pack, like don't wear the same pants hiking from, you know, a, a trail in one area to a trail in another area, unless you wash them first, which seems kind of like, you know, that should just make sense, but you know, uh, rain jacket, all that kind of stuff. It, they, they should be cleaned between hikes because what's in one area might not be in another area. And so I think that's just a good, general practice um and you know being aware of kind of like where you're hiking and, and uh and and being courteous uh not just to um your fellow hikers but also to the people who live nearby and and to the environment around so you know not uh if you're if you want to help clear, keep the trail clear know what you're cutting so you're not necessarily cutting the ohia tree or or another native plant that's right there um i think there's other elements towards preventing invasive species spread as well um you know like the basic things of not importing <laughs> new plants and animals um to the state um and to have things go through inspection with department of ag um I think that's that's really important. A lot of the pests that we have, the recent things, sometimes we don't know how they get here, and sometimes it's very directly a result of of human agency, um, whether bringing them here intentionally or unintentionally. So I think that's a big thing as well because we don't know what the next threat is, and it's so much easier to stop it before it enters the state um, entirely. So. I think that those are, maybe they're less glamorous, but I think they're hugely important for protecting native plants. Yeah, it absolutely seems like a lot of what we can do for native plants, uh, it's, 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 on, it's on two factors. It's one, we want to support and lift up the native plants themselves. But on the other side, we need to stop invasive plants from coming in and basically ruining all the hard work that we're doing. 
So that's that's a really excellent point to make. You know, I I am also or I personally am guilty of you know hyper focusing sometimes, and <laughs> I often get hyper focused on you know the specific plants that I want to protect or the plants that I think are really cool, and it's it's easy to overlook some of the really small stuff like just yeah, make sure that you're not walking seeds all over. Um, the island and moving stuff all over the place. And especially for rapid ohia death, like we mentioned before, cleaning off your boots and your pack, you know, bring a little bit of, of alcohol spray with you and just spray it down to stop the spread of rapid ohia death. You know, these types of mindful practices can be really, really helpful. Um, so we're, we're coming yeah. around towards the end of the interview now. And so I, I'd love to give you an opportunity to sort of put, put a bow on this. So there's some, okay. some last thoughts, uh, Maybe like sum it all up in a nice neat package so people can just sort of skip to the end and just listen to this part and skip right. all the rest. Although they won't know to skip to the end until they get to here. So ha jokes on them. Gotcha, listener. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised by how fast the time went. I feel like, oh, there's still more things to say. Um, <laughs> I guess, so one thing that um, kind of a colleague had um, sent me that I think is just a really fascinating kind of uh, kind of showing kind of like the history of things and how, how we're, <laughs> how things have changed, but not changed so much is um, there is a report by us forester EM Griffith on Hawaiian forests. And uh, he did this report. He presented it in Yokohama, Japan of all places in March, uh, 1902. Um and I guess if it's okay, I, I'd like to read a couple quotes from it um, because I think it, it's very telling and very interesting. So this is in 1902. So he said, he wrote, formerly the Hawaiian islands were covered with dense and almost impenetrable forests, which covered the steep ridges and deep canyons extending down to the narrow strip of arable land along the coasts and up to an elevation of 8,000 and 9,000 feet on the highest mountains. Ever running streams and springs occurred on all the islands and the rainfall was fairly even and much heavier than it is today. Um, okay. The old chiefs began the destruction of the forest by cutting enormous quantities of sandalwood, but the blanks were soon filled up by the other forest trees. The rapidity with which the native Hawaiian forest can be absolutely destroyed is truly remarkable and peculiar to the islands. Dense forests, which were absolutely impassable, have, within the short space of five to ten years, been completely wiped out, so that at the present time the soil is covered with a thick matting of grass. This comes from the fact that all the native trees have a shallow, have a very shallow root system so that the least drying up of the soil immediately affects their vitality. In nearly all sections of the islands, the undergrowth is composed largely of a dense mass of ferns, which absorb a very large amount of moisture, thus affording a most favorable protection to the soil. Um, and it goes on. <laughs> um, he mentions kind of the threat from cattle and um, and from actually from insects, um, and kind of some of the kind of like, oh, that koa is great for woodworking. But what I think is really fascinating is that about this is that 
even back then, there was such a clear recognition of some of the threats to our forest and just kind of, um, and, and how, yeah, there's a clear recognition of the threats. And there was also this clear recognition of the importance of native forest to the aquifer and to rainfall, um, uh, to groundwater, <laughs> to watershed health and water resources in general. So I think, you know, like he, he has, he has another sentence, forest protection means not only increasing the rainfall, but more important still, conserving the water supply. And so he, you know, is talking about the importance of preserving mm -hmm. forests. So I, I, I find that really interesting because in some, some ways we're still study, studying those same questions today. And it's, um, it's a little bit of a good reminder about how important it is to kind of like build on the knowledge that we already have and to to take action right if like we knew in 1902 what back then there was recognition of what some of these threats were and what if there had been more active kind of response to those threats then would we have much more vast native forest and healthier native forest now um what do we know now and what actions can we take now um to kind of protect the forest going forward. So I think we know that invasive species are an issue. We know that um, kind of, uh, uh, we know that we have tools to manage them. So let's implement those. Let's, let's you know, take the next step with our natural resource management, with our kind of our sanitation protocols for the state and implement those and see how we do. Yeah, that's that seems like, a, a wonderful lesson, not not just when dealing with native plants, but also kind of just in life, you know, when you see a problem, do something about it. The longer you just sit around and, and let it, you know, go unanswered, the bigger the problem is going to get. Uh, I should probably listen to that and actually take that to heart because, boy, do I love putting my problems up yeah. until later. Well, Jane, it's it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Uh, I, I think we had the had the makings here for a very interesting episode. Um, but, you know, you at home listening, you can be the judge of that. Uh, but thanks so much, Jane. It's been a wonderful having you on the oh, show. Thanks, Max. And I wish uh, I wish you all the best in recruiting more volunteers. Um, and I think, you know, I look forward to uh, seeing some of those volunteer trips when all this pandemic is, is lifted and we can all, like, interact in person again. Well, this has been another episode of Conservation Talk Story brought to you by the Society for Conservation Biology with help from KTUH, the station that loves you. Uh, please take a look at our previous episodes. They are currently up on KTUH's SoundCloud page, um, soundcloud.com slash KTUH, I think. I don't know. You know how to use Google, so just Google it. Uh, also, please take a look at our website, www.hiscb.org. Uh, we are a volunteer organization and we offer free membership for students and only $10 membership for professionals and non-students. It's very, very cheap. It's a really easy way to support local conservation efforts here in Hawaii and also get yourself some opportunities to go out and volunteer directly. Uh, we have multiple committees that you can also get involved with directly if you want to do something like that. Uh, we've got our education and outreach committee which focuses on the volunteer events and getting the community engaged. We have our policy committee. They're currently drafting a policy statement um, to help inform our you know, legislators to pass 
more conservation friendly laws. So if you're interested in the, the legal side of things or conservation law at all, you know, you can get involved in crafting our next policy statement after this one is done. Uh, and then there's the committee that I run, the Science Communication Committee. We do stuff like this, uh, science communication projects. So, so we do a lot of publishing in uh, local newspapers, and we also do multimedia projects like this podcast here. So please take a look at all the cool things that the Society for Conservation Biology is doing here in Hawaii, www.hiscb.org. And thank you so much for listening.